This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, flamethrowers. Amir here. Before we jumped into our episode, I wanted to take this time to remind everybody about our Patreon campaign. What is that, you ask? Well, here's how it works. You pledge a certain amount every month, as low as $2 or as much as you want, to become official patron of the podcast. What does that mean, you ask? Well, in exchange for your monthly contribution, you get access to special rewards such as an extra segment of the podcast, monthly newsletters, opportunities to dominate women for badass women of the week, or pile on our burn pile, things that are only available to our official patrons and members of our Patreon community. So far, you guys have been amazing, and we've been able to solidify funding for editing and transcripts. And right now, we're working towards an even bigger goal, getting a producer to help us every week. We love doing Burn It All Down and bringing you this this podcast on a weekly basis and your patreon contributions and building this community only helps us make the show that much better so thank you all who have donated and for everybody else jump on board you can check out our patreon campaign and figure out how to sign up on patreon at www.patreon.com slash burn it all down or you can just go through our website burn it all down pod.com Welcome to this week of Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Penn State. And I'm joined today by two of my favorite ladies, fellow historian and all-around genius Brenda Elsie from Hofstra University and our resident Canadian phenom, Shireen Ahmed. <laughs> hey, ladies. Hi. Hello. This week, we'll be talking women's sports fans in Saudi Arabia. We'll chat about Serena's revealing and important feature in Vogue. And Lindsay chats with Lachina Robinson about basketball. Of course, we'll be talking about some badass women and burning some things. But before we jump into that, I have to ask, guys, have you seen this positive sign girl? <laughs> I love, did. love, love positive sign girl. I'm like, where was she throughout my athletic career? <laughs> right. So for folks who, who didn't see her, there's video trending going viral, whatever we call it these days, of a girl at, what, she was at a Capitals game? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, with a sign that said, you are all talented, <laughs> which quickly earned her the nickname of Positive Sign Girl, because it was definitely a sign that we don't usually see at sporting events. Yeah, her name's Riley Evans. And I, I, I read a quote from her where she was saying, trash talking is a big part of sports, but I felt like doing something different because everyone on the ice, opponent or not, is incredibly talented, really. And it's like, 
oh my god uh-huh. oh yeah of course you're like yeah oh my goodness like we could be nice to each other <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it doesn't have to be this. And and I was just in the midst of reading about a thousand million Arsenal posts about Alexi Sanchez and how all the trash talking, they've gone after his dogs. Now, I know you guys will feel the pain of that. I mean, Alexi's <laughs> really committed to Adam and Hummer, his dogs. He has a whole yeah. Instagram account for them. So there's all these kind of banners coming up that say, you know, F you and your shit dogs. Oh my so God. positive sign girl was like oh oof, alexis needs her i mean clearly have you guys ever brought signs to sporting events i think the only sign i would ever carry is if i meet tim duncan it would say timmy marry me and i'm still open to that but i haven't <laughs> i would actually prefer to write it in the sky i think that's what i would do only uh, only two times <laughs> only two times the 1984 tigers I was super dedicated to Chet Lemon, a center fielder. And <laughs> no, like really, really I don't know, it's it's bizarre. I can't explain it. It's for therapy. And <laughs> and I, I had a sign then. And then the women's world cup in Montreal, I had I love you so much, Marta. Mm, yeah. Well actually I have a women's world cup sign story too. When I was I have to say at the end so it was the, when the ninety niners were going to the world cup so i was in like fifth grade and we my whole maple team took a field trip to foxborough to watch them play and i remember getting a sign out and drawing on it. i have terrible handwriting it was just so, it was so time consuming like i applaud everybody who takes the time to do this and after all of that i left my sign in the car Oh, so, <laughs> um, wait, 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 wait a minute. Uh, you were in grade five when the nine, you watched the 99ers play. <laughs> yes. Don't I got meditate married. on yes. it, Shireen. Don't, I don't, I got don't meditate on that. <laughs> <World Cup>, okay. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> All right. So let's jump right into our first topic. This week, we were flooded with pictures, wonderful, wonderful pictures that I found so heartwarming of women fans entering the stadiums in Saudi Arabia for the first time. Shireen, can you take us into this section? Sure. Thanks, Samira. Her story. So for the first time in its nation's history, women's football supporters were permitted in a sports stadium in the kingdom of Saudi Saudi Arabia. They watched the Saudi Pro League match between Al-Ahli and Al-Batin in Jeddah. Now, women wore traditional soccer scarves supporting their team, like in whichever colors, and cheered and clapped in what were called the family sections, which were specifically for children and women accompanied by their husbands or brothers or whatnot. Now, selfies, fan face paint, chants, and all the usual excitement would now include women very, very publicly. I think that it's really important to understand that the changes were supported by King Salman, a new king in 2015, and his son, Mohammed bin Salman. Yes, the same folks were mercilessly bombing Yemen, but that's for another segment or podcast. But in addition to creating jobs for women, like ushers, food servers, etc., it actually creates the visibility of women in public and family spaces, which was severely lacking before and still remains to be a huge challenge. Now, we can talk about discussions on culture in terms of uh, Gulf culture, Middle Eastern culture, where women not attending sporting events is actually not 
uncommon. I mean, now Iran, and I've written about this quite a bit, Iran actually has a formal legal stadium ban where women are not permitted. And so what we see happening is that sometimes women dress up as men to actually attend these events, because don't forget, these are football-loving countries and and women make up a huge amount of those populations so we see uh situations where women dress up and disguise themselves as men and this mm. is very much like a, a throwback to one of my favorite movies called Offside by Iranian filmmaker Jafar Parnayi where there was follows a story of five uh, four young women who actually dress up as boys to get into a stadium a world cup qualifying match in Tehran at Azadi Stadium now the whole thing about and this we've seen actually stories of women emerging who have done this in Saudi Arabia. Now, with this, I think there's issues, there's things that we have to keep in mind here, the classism of involving this, because it's very expensive to attend these matches and it becomes a thing. But I mean, I think we can have a discussion on about what the optics are from the outside, because we're outside looking in as well, right? And, and what this means for sport in general. Mm, yeah. Hey, Shireen, can I ask you a question? Sure. So I follow open stadiums and some of the other accounts that are up there of women, you know, trying to do all sorts of organizing around this issue in the Middle East. Where else should we be looking for, you know, for updates on this, for kind of information? Because it's really hard giving the Islamophobia in the U.S. Mm -hmm. to get, you know, to get the right to the right places. I think in the way. Open Stadiums is amazing, first of all, and I've worked with them and I've collaborated with them on a, and when I've reported, I did stories for Vice about them and the work that they're doing. And this is, I mean, we talk about it and it's not like a big, oh, this is about me and how great my writing is. Uh, that's not where I'm going with this. I'm just saying to write about these things with nuance is very difficult, but I'm finding that the stories that are coming out now, like the language being used is better than it was, let's just say five years ago. The story that I've quoted one of them was a New York Times story, and it wasn't my favorite, to be very honest with you. Um, I didn't like the language used. And I'm happy to say that. And I didn't like the language used because you're right. In a place where there's rampant Islamophobia, it's hard to write with a critical understanding of context that doesn't minimize. And also, I need people to keep in mind that the campaigning for women's rights has been happening in Saudi forever, like there's right. this assumption that this white saviorist assumption that it's only when Nick Kristoff decides to write about it, does it become relevant? And <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, I'm totally throwing shade. I can't stand that guy. Yes, throw and, that shade. And like, literally, I'm just like, oh, even through my face veil, I'm like throwing shade. I don't wear a face veil. It was a metaphor. <laughs> well, actually, it's minus, <laughs> minus 19 in Toronto. I'm going to be wearing a face veil today. <laughs> But the reality is, is that the women there have been campaigning. I mean, one of the the uh, so the directors of women's sports in Saudi is actually one of the princesses. I have mixed feelings mm. about that. Michael tweet about them later. But I think the thing is, is that there is a lot of grassroots movement. And that's like what open stadiums is. It's grassroots movement. And there are such movements happening in Saudi Arabia. That's why I mentioned the classism, because not everybody will have access to these spaces. Right. Precisely. And, no, I think, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I think that this is such an important point, And I just kind of want to pause on it for a second, because I think that, and I have, I, I have a problem with some of the reporting that happens around this, because it does take on this kind of fetishization in this way that's like, oh, women are finally getting liberated that completely discounts <laughs> internal and grassroots movement that are happening there. But also it just really belies a complete lack of understanding about 
about culture. And I think that that's a really important point is it's not enough to just kind of sit cozy in the United States and look over there and be like, oh, look, they're finally getting cultured and letting women into stadiums. (laughs) Like it, it completely discounts, you know, what what women on the ground in places like Saudi Arabia have been doing for years, exactly what you said. Um, and I think that's a really important point to to overemphasize again and again. Yeah, I think that exactly what you said, but also I think in terms of it also just infuriates me because like you said, there's an erasure of the work that's currently being done. And in Iran, the movement specifically comes from women and and some very few allies. It comes from women. And now the word is getting out like open stadiums and within the Gulf. And there's something else I kind of wanted to mention that I wrote about this about four years ago, actually, about the shift in change uh, in culture and fan culture in the Gulf region and in the Middle East. Mm. And it was started very simply as like an Emirati team went to Bahrain to play in what's called the Gulf Cup. And at the time it was, I had reported, uh, I, I sorry, I cited a New York Times story, not written by Nick Kristoff, about how <laughs> Saudi Arabia was building a stadium back then. And the stadium actually had to be completely reconfigured and rebuilt to accommodate family sections. So these spaces were actually built without any, any concept that women might be attending. So that is changing slowly. And there's no shortage of money in these spaces. So they build those fucking stadiums. But I mean, the reality is, is that there were women there and the tide is shifting. And like I said, it's, you have to keep class in mind here because it's only the upper echelon that get to travel and get to do this. But a group of women traveled from the Emirates to Bahrain at that time to go support their team, their national team. Mm-hmm. And there, like, there's a really cool quote from a um, sociologist at University of Sharjah. His name is Dr. Ahmed Al-Omosh. And he says that it's not just cultural inequality or traditional generals. It can be about national pride. And he says sports right. makes everyone connect as it is a mutual language for everyone. And a victory for a national team is bound to enhance national identity and unite people. And I think that's that's really important to keep in mind. And excluding women from those places is really problematic. Yeah, no, I think that's a really that's a great quote. And that's a, that's a really really great point. And the other thing, I mean, I think you know Brenda kind of alluded to this about the rampant Islamophobia here. I think it also opens up an important conversation for folks who don't understand the way ideas about gender equality can can hold water in something like Islam, which is such a false understanding of what Islam is. And I've learned so much from one of my closest friends and fellow historians, Sarah Renama, who's researched in Algeria and and in kind of French empire, has really done such a great job documenting all of the ways that a lot of grassroots movements in in places like Algeria and Morocco and Tunisia were started by understandings of Islam that permitted a wider range of actions for women than than perhaps the state. And I think that that's such a necessary thing to combat this idea that, you know, to be Muslim, to be a Muslim woman means you're inherently oppressed or or that somehow the campaigns for women's rights in Saudi are a reflection on Islam writ large. And I think that that's something that we really need to disavow and push back very hard on. Well, I think this is why it's so interesting about Saudi, these specific bans or not bans, the restrictions. And in Iran, yes, it's a ban, because those are the two countries that optically for people outside or in, in, in the West, they like are, 
they, they are literally, they think Islam. People don't think about Bosnia. People don't think about Malaysia. People don't think about Indonesia. People don't think about other spaces within the Muslim majority world where women actually do attend things. Women like go right, to events. Exactly. Like, I mean, there's more Muslims in Indonesia than there are in Iran and Saudi Arabia. So like, you know, it's this, it's very, like you said, it's a misunderstanding. And don't get me wrong, there's massive problems within those spaces, which I completely, like, completely, you know, will give, you know, massive rewards for like cultural patriarchy and toxic patriarchy and misogyny, yeah. absolutely, which happens all over the world. And I mean, I know that there's some fan cultures in Russia where women don't feel comfortable going to stadiums at all because... Oh, there's fan cultures here where women don't feel comfortable going to stadiums. Brenda, do you have a last thought? I just thought it would be interesting too for us to link to the show notes, the story of the the first Saudi woman who competed in the Olympics in 2012, Wojdan Shaharkani, who was a judo competitor in 2012. And a a lot of this, so when you say it's like, uh, this is older, and this has a longer history, it's really important, because if you erase that history of the women themselves who have been their own advocates, and who have been agitating for all of these years, then you delegitimize their agency in this, you know, and I just, I just think the more that we can sort of highlight open stadiums, people doing that work. It's like, of course, we have to step back and say how wonderful she was, but also just sort of recognizing that in the West, we can't really lead that charge, right? It's going to, it's good. We're good. We have to be like the cheering section in the back seat a little bit. <laughs> so mm, right. I don't know. That's right. what I sort of feeling about it is like, this is great. I love the attention to it. Um, but I do remember when Shahrukhani was competing in the Olympics, everyone was like, oh my God, the IOC produced this. You know, by by making every team bring a woman, they've created a revolution in Saudi Arabia. And it's like, uh, not at all. Uh, Those women, (laughs) those women are leading that charge. So I don't know. I guess that's like my one thought about I take it all sort of with this huge grain of salt and also with all this admiration for the women who are just out there being badass. Yeah, totally. Now I want to pivot to discussion to a piece that recently came out in Vogue with Serena Williams, who's on the cover with her beautiful baby girl. I mean, the pictures in this are just phenomenal as well. We talk about viral pictures this week that made me feel all the good feelings. But it also had a lot of deeper things to say if you read the text of the piece. To start off this discussion, I want to throw it to Brenda. Yeah, I mean, there there have been over the last few years a number of really good and important studies about how women of color are repeatedly not listened to, die at much higher rates. And Serena, it just seems to me like once again, is bringing up with her whole you know, medical ordeals during mostly after uh, childbirth is once again, just like bringing up a conversation that is absolutely essential, like whether it's equal pay or whether it's racism in the stands. And now it's like maternal health. And it's like, yup, absolutely time to have this, especially because our healthcare system is, is predicated on a classist, racist, sexist hierarchy that we know. And for I would just like to say at the top, we said we we talked about African American women. I should also talk a little bit about Latina Mm -hmm. and Latinx or Latinx. I've always loved Latinx. But no, no, no one's come on board with that yet. But, but just to say that that mil, like the group that was most benefited by the Affordable Care Act uh, were Latinos. 
And mm-hmm. basically the uninsured rate for working age Latino, Latinx adults fell from 43.2% in 2010 to 24.8% in 2016. So it made a huge impact on that community. And now that it's slowly being whittled away, or I mean, not that slowly, maternal health for Latinas, which falls somewhere in between African, the death rates between African-American and, and, and white women, depending on class and language and when they got here, I expect to also get much, much worse. So I just that came to mind when I read Serena's piece and just once again, grateful that she's just like throwing up these important issues with her awesomeness. Right. And so I just want to take a moment for people who may not have read the piece to to kind of give some background context. So in the Vogue piece, Serena is talking about motherhood. She's talking about her marriage. She's talking about getting ready to return to tennis. And in it, she documents that she had a relatively easy pregnancy. But then she narrates a frightening ordeal that she underwent after after giving birth. And essentially, she was feeling short of breath the next day in the hospital, and she's had a history of blood clots. So she went and, you know, asked the the nearest nurse that she wanted a CT scan with contrast. She wanted an IV. She basically advocated for herself, said exactly what she needed. And so, but the response was questioning her, said, maybe you're pain medicine might be making you confused, but she kept insisting that she knew what she was talking about and this is what she wanted. So a doctor came and they brought a Doppler and she said, a Doppler, I quote, I told you I need a CT scan and a heparin drip. And the ultrasound revealed nothing. So then they finally did what she asked. And sure enough, they found several small blood clots in her lungs. And And I think that this has sparked, as Brenda has kind of alluded to, and gone Mm -hmm. dovetailed with Mm -hmm. an important conversation that we have seen led, I think, ProPublica has been doing tremendous reporting around this. The fact that about 700 to 900 women die every Mm -hmm. year from causes related to pregnancy and childbirth. And what's worse, it's estimated that up to 60% of those complications are preventable. And Uh, In that number, one of the things that we see is that Black women are, you know, statistically three to four times more likely to die than white mothers, but often missing from the public discussions. And I think that, as, as Brenda said, Serena, once again, is becoming or kind of lending her voice to a platform in a way that can really galvanize and and heighten this conversation for some folks who haven't been following along with it. Yeah, I'm just, the the statistics that you read off, like they're harrowing and they're horrible about, you know, and, and, and there was some commentary and discussion up here of a friend of mine who actually said that in Canada, although we have universal health care, the sort of dismissal of Indigenous and Black women is the worst in within the medical, uh, you know, healthcare system that you can't ignore. And these, I think these conversations are really important because the needs of those women in these marginalized communities, racialized communities, get swept up in the discussion of overall women's general health, which is, is honestly, you know, sort of fueled by the feminist debate that is largely run by white women. And those that looks very different. One thing I will kind of add into this is that when I read this piece, I got really scared because, first of all, Serena is one of the most formidable athletes in the world ever, full stop. But she also has money. And I'm like, geez, if she has money and this is yeah. happening, what about the women who don't? And like, this is Serena Williams. She's yeah. pretty much the queen of the world. Like, 
I was, I got really scared. And, and, you know, like this is, she had to instruct these healthcare practitioners what to do to save her life. And she's, you know, she didn't have that in her, which we know she does, has that confidence, but she was pushed in this circumstance. She shouldn't have had to do that. Is there no place? Like she just had a baby. Is there no place that, you know, this phenomenal black woman can get rest and respite? Like she pushed a human out of her body. Can we not give her some space to like not be on guard? Like I, I'm getting like right. this little physical reaction right now is to tense up. Like I really need to calm down. No, I don't need to calm down. But I mean, I think it's that's what was so hurtful to me too. No, precisely. There is a really painful but necessary article in ProPublica. Um, oh, yeah, I saw that. Called Nothing Protects Black Women from Dying in Pregnancy and Childbirth. And the, the tagline underneath it is, the subheader is, not education, not income, not even being an expert on racial disparities in healthcare. And this was a story co-published with NPR that, that followed the story of Shalon Irving, who was person who researched this, who worked in this and still didn't get taken seriously when she was feeling alarmed after birth. And I think that that is such such a necessary and frightening thing to point out, that this is somebody who has mm-hmm. access, who has money, who, you know, is formidable and and still doesn't get taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what happens when you, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is a, a professional athlete who knows the ins and outs of her body, right? This is somebody for a living needs to take mm-hmm. care and be in tune with what her body is telling her and what her body is doing. And so to not take her voice seriously in that moment really demonstrates what a battle it is for people without you know some of those privileges and I mean I I had Samari when I was 19 and in two weeks it will be 10 years and and that was what I found at every turn that it was really hard to get mm-hmm. taken seriously as as a person who knows yourself and not taken seriously by doctors, not during pregnancy, not during childbirth, not after childbirth when something feels off. I and that's why this conversation is is so important, but also so fear-invoking, truthfully, because I can see at every juncture in my own three pregnancies how I've been ignored. It took until I got a black black woman medical professional that I felt like my words were being actually listened to in my own kind of health care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I too, the woman that I call, she had a hat trick. She delivered three of my children. It was a South Asian doctor. <laughs> and then I had midwives deliver my fourth and they were very holistic in their practice and really heard me. But by the time I had my fourth kid, I was like, yeah, I can pretty much do this myself. I mean, I had, you know, thank God Almighty had very uncomplicated pregnancies. But, you know, I think that the reality is, there's a huge power dynamic in these places, particularly when you have vulnerable, you know, people coming with illness or within sensitive situations. And pregnancy is definitely one of them. I mean, it's not just a physical condition, it's a psycho-emotional condition as well. And, you know, to be unheard at that time of your most, and you're protective because you're carrying this in whatever circumstance it may be, in good or bad or, or whatnot, to not hear these women is is a gross violation of every possible ethic, professional ethic there is known to, to the profession in, in any sense, nurses, doctors, whatnot. It's just, it's unacceptable. Yeah. Yeah. 
And if this happens in pregnancy and childbirth, we know it happens beyond that too. So it brings up this particularly prescient moment for women that are undergoing this and women of color who experience this racism more acutely. But let's also think it happens to African-Americans, Asian, Latinx women when it comes to breast Mm -hmm. cancer, when it comes to diabetes. It's not like the healthcare system is all of a sudden like, hey, you know what? I get you. I feel you. I want to listen to you. Uh Uh-uh. So I feel like I feel like this doing the maternal health thing is so is so important. But if we threw up the same statistics about how African American women are treated in other capacities of the healthcare system, I feel pretty confident they would mirror those numbers. You know, they would show the same types of patterns that exist. So it's basically in the US at least, our healthcare system or a lot of people pretty much want to model it on a Walmart. <laughs> And, and, you know, and that means, you know, everything from union busting to environmental degradation to just everything has a price tag. And so it's classist as well. But we know that that intersectionality means that women of color will be disproportionately affected. And until I just think fundamentally, until we challenge the single, you know, we accept the single payer system, even that won't solve it, of course. But there's no way to even deal with this like consumer shopping mindset of healthcare, which is a human right. right. And you know, the the thing that it made me think about is I think it was last year. Well, no, now it's 2018. So in 2016, um, there was a report out of UVA that surveyed medical students and they found that medical students believe that black people feel less pain than whites. Now this is, oh my um, God. you know, out of a tradition, a long tradition of scientific racism, which is the idea that, you know, they, and I quote from their study, a substantial number of white lay people and medical students and residents hold false beliefs about biological differences between blacks and whites and demonstrate that these beliefs predict racial bias and pain perception and treatment recommendation accuracy, which essentially has wide implications, especially if you think about athletic training and sport, right? If we think about concussion protocols, we think about shin splints, anything that has to do with taking care of bodies in sport. And we think about these these racial biases in medical training, it has huge implications to how athletes can access care and and how they are kind of given training regimes. And I think it's a necessary conversation that's that's one that's less less prominent. I also think, you know, the other the other thing with with this piece and Serena in Vogue is it also demonstrates the multiple ways that women athletes can bring awareness to all these different issues. So we mentioned Serena talking about police brutality and pay equality. And this is also a conversation that needs to be had. You know, there's many athletes who struggle to get back to being professional athletes after childbirth and, and, or push themselves through a lot of hoops to do it. And, and I think that it's something that we don't talk about as much. I research a time where if you had a baby, that was essentially the end of your career. A lot of people don't know that Wilma Rudolph, a year and a half before winning her three golds in 1960 in Rome, actually had a baby that she was being secret and needed to keep secret because it would have meant, you know, losing her, her place at school and losing her kind of work aid scholarship and, and a baby equaled retirement. And so we've definitely 
come a long ways over the years that, you know, there's many athletes who are mothers and, and who are celebrated as mothers. I remember watching Love and Basketball and that ending scene where Sonal Lathan has made it to the WNBA and, and Omar Epps is, uh, you know, bouncing their baby girl on his knee and thinking, you know, we now have images of athletes as mothers. And I think that that's also a very necessary thing. So I, I round off this portion thinking about the overall Vogue piece and that it is this really great celebration of Serena and Serena as a mother. And at the same time, it's really interesting to watch her start shifting back to tennis. And she has this great quote at the end that I kind of want to close with. People asked her if she's going to, you know, is she ready to come back? And she said, look, I've been playing tennis since before my memories started. And at my age, I see the finish line. And when you see the finish line, you don't slow down, you speed up. So this week, Lindsay had the wonderful opportunity to chat with LaChina Robinson about women's basketball. Check out the interview. All right. Hello, everyone. This is Lindsay Gibbs, and I am here with the great LaChina Robinson. She was a star basketball player at Wake Forest University. For a few years, she worked at Georgia Tech in the basketball program there before transitioning to become the queen of women's basketball broadcasting. LaChina, I usually try and do a little bit of a recap of people's bios, but it there's you do too much for me to do that in one podcast episode. <laughs> but I know you've been, been at ESPN since 2009, and you, you work with the Atlanta Dream as an analyst, and I've seen you this year on the ACC Network and Fox Sports South and the Big East and my favorite is your Around the Rim W Women's Basketball, excuse me, Women's Basketball podcast over at ESPN. I mean, you are in the in the center of things when it comes to women's basketball coverage. So from from that spot, <laughs> it's easy for us from the outside to talk about ways we want to see the sport covered maybe a little bit differently. From the inside, what steps do you think could be taken to take women's basketball from a coverage perspective to the next level? Yeah, I think first and foremost, just starting with those of us that do have the opportunity to cover women's basketball, to cover it like you would any sport, right? So there's this perception that, okay, we can I can get into women's basketball and then, you know, kind of use that as my springboard to get into football or to get into NBA or whatever it is when this is this is not a springboard right like if you're going to cover the game if you get a job as an SID or as a beat writer or you know to contribute to women's basketball really get into it you know really learn the sport learn the history of it you know understand these athletes these women some of the challenges that are different from the sports that I named and you know like WNBA players going overseas in the offseason just all of the different dynamics that make women's basketball special like know who Pat Summit is and then the other part of it is I mean we've just got to dedicate more resources to it. You know, I think whether it's in newspapers, I know are, are kind of uh, going away as we know it. But if, if you're writing for a website or no matter what your role, what you, what opportunities you have within your media entity to dedicate to, to women's basketball, dedicate resources to it. Like there's it's crazy. And someone I was reading online the other day, there was a top 25 matchup. And there was no national writing presence at this game. And I'm like, this would never happen in a, in a men's basketball or NBA game. Like sending a writer there is not hard, you know, and there's plenty of people that are interested. I mean, via Twitter, gosh, I mean, I've, I've met so many people that at least on the surface say we're interested in covering this sport. 
But are we dedicating enough resources to it? Are the networks dedicating enough resources to it? You know, whoever has, whoever it is that has the capability to, to, to send a writer or to maybe do a, a, a marketing spot for an upcoming women's basketball game, do that. Do that if you would any other sport. But I love it. I think that's easier for me to say, but I think if the, if people just gave it a try, if you just went to a game, if you just, you know, get past the fact that there are women playing sports, honestly, like that's half the battle, then we would be in a much better place in terms of the coverage. Absolutely. We also we often say here it's a chicken egg problem. You know, they say, well, if more people were interested in it, we'd put more resources into it. And you say, well, how can people get interested in it if you don't put any resources into it? Exactly. You know, like, and, and it often seems like the media and fans and then executives are are, are locked in this you know this stalemate kind of where there's nothing you can yeah. do. Yeah, and I think the most important part is for people to look at the trend. You know, I, I tweeted something the other day that ratings for the WNBA finals are up and ratings for the NCAA Women's Championship are up. Like people are watching women's basketball in record numbers. I mean, with the, look at what the WNBA did with Twitter viewership last year. Like we're seeing that when you put the game on, people are watching. So put it on. And how about you build some programming around it too? And so <laughs> all of that helps. How do you sum up Connecticut's greatness? And what is someone who does pay attention to the sport so closely? Can you put your finger on what it is that makes them so outstanding? Because I feel like that's what we don't talk about enough. It's like, how in the world is this happening? Yeah, I think it, it all starts with Gino and Chris Daly. You know, I mean, they started a program that wasn't very good many years ago. And to be honest, it, it's hard to sum up into just one thing. But I think it's it, it was their competitive drive, obviously, to, to grow the program, to get to a place in, of excellence. But it... Having been in practices, having been in shoot-around, number one, there's an expectation, right? There's a cultural expectation that you are going to meet the UConn standard. And if you don't, you don't play. Or you don't even get recruited by Connecticut to begin with, okay? So there's that culture and expectation that I think can even become sort of a, a pressure, right? And we know that pressure makes diamonds <laughs> and, and that yeah. it, it tends to bring out the best in these players. But again, having been to the practices and shoot around, there's an attention to detail that I've, I've seen very little in during my time in basketball travels. I've been to a million practices, a million shoot arounds. And when you go to Connecticut and into their shoot arounds, into, you know, their practice environment, your foot needs to be on this line and there is not even, there's no room for error, right? Like that's where it needs to be, not close to the line, not near the line, not behind the line, not in front of it, but on it. And everything they do, there's a, there's a very high expectation to that degree. Chris Daly is one of the best I've ever seen when it comes to just the little things. And the little things add up and, and equal greatness. And, you know, whether it's how you're shooting the ball or what shot you take, well, that, that shot went in, but don't take that shot again because that doesn't <laughs> go with the flow of what we're doing. And that was a good shot, but it wasn't a great shot. So it, it's just that constant 
that constant push for excellence, but also never settling. I mean, Gino, UConn, I mean, they never settle. They could win by 40 and he's still not happy because what he's, he's coaching against himself. He wants the best version of his own team. He's not coaching against you. I know what this team is capable of. I know what great basketball looks like, and that's what they're striving to do every day. This has been a really interesting season so far in women's basketball. You've had the reemergence of Tennessee, you know, at the top of the game. Great stories like Ja'Kyla Hill over at Grambling State with a quadruple double. You have what Sabrina Ionescu is doing over at Oregon. But but what storyline so far in the non-conference season and here at the beginning of the conference season has kind of excited or surprised you the most? Wow. Yeah, I would definitely say Tennessee for sure. You know, considering... All that happened with Diamond to Shields and, you know, Taya Cooper, like they were they were losing some talent, but they were getting the number one class in the nation. And you never know how freshmen are going to perform. And I've been pleasantly surprised. I know they were upset uh, this week by Texas A&M, but at the same time, it's just you're watching a Tennessee Lady Vol program that reminds you of the Tennessee of old. You know, there's been some times in recent years where I'm watching games and I'm like, I don't know what they're trying to do on offense. I'm not sure what what's happening here. And I think everyone's quick to criticize Holly Warlick. But if anything, this year's team shows you that it has a lot to do with player personnel. You know, to be honest with you, this these players look like they are they're playing unselfish basketball. They're dedicated to the defensive end, to rebounding, which are two things that have really been the foundation of this program going back to when Pat Summit first started it. And just the intensity level and the focus. And it's a really a brand new day for Tennessee. And I love the group, Jamie Nard and, and Mercedes Russell and you know, even the young kids like Avina Westbrook, like they're just they're different. And and it's good to see Tennessee back to being Tennessee. We talk a lot about athlete activism here on Burn It All Down and women's basketball players, particularly the, you know, black women in the WNBA have just been leading the charge. Do you think we're going to see that continue going forward? And is there something particular about women's basketball? Do you think that leads itself to this type of outspokenness? Well, you know, when you look at the women that make up the league, I mean, these women are phenomenal. You know, they're educated. They're the best athletes in the world. They're business owners. You know, they, they want to be doctors. They want to go to Duke and, and get their medical degree. Like Elizabeth so, Williams. All right. Yeah. yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> they're so dynamic and, and smart. And, and so we're in a time where we're seeing social activism, especially from athletes happening. And it it doesn't surprise me at all that uh, the WNBA in particular have been leaders in this place because these women are very socially aware. You know, they are involved in politics, engaged in politics, and they know how important it is for women to have a voice, to be united, because (laughs) the crazy part of what's happening in our world today is this is nothing new to women and it's definitely nothing new to black women. So when you look at 75% of the league being African-American women, you know, and look 
at the history of what African-American women have had to go through. And even still today, you know, when you look at the pay scale, you know, it's just the, the inequalities that exist when you're a double minority. You know, these women know that it, it, it means it's more than just what's happening on the basketball court. Like they have an opportunity and a chance to stand up for uh, the black women that aren't in the boardroom or the black women who are at, are at a socioeconomic disadvantage in our communities. And I'm just proud that they have taken advantage of that platform and feel the need to stand up for what's happening in our country, whatever that is, even if it's police brutality. You know, again, I think as a double minority, as African-American women, their experiences are are so real in, in some of the issues that we're facing. And just they feel the need and the responsibility to have a voice. And I, and I don't see that changing. I don't either. Listen, we're lucky to have you in women's basketball. And thank you so much for joining us on the show. People can follow LaChina at LaChina Robinson on Twitter. And definitely download the Around the Rim podcast because it goes in-depth into the women's basketball world every week. And it's a, it's a must-listen. Thank you. All right, now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. We like to call it the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and set them aflame. Brenda, you want to start? Sure. I am really pissed off this week at U.S. soccer. (laughs) Just probably like half of my burns. But basically for a couple of reasons, mostly the U.S. soccer presidential campaign. We've we've talked about it in a couple of episodes before. No one has spoken at all, really, or addressed the issue of the quote unquote, what they call the Hispanic Latinx community. And uh, there's two things going on at the same time that that I want to burn this week. First, there's been a blaming of the venue back in September where U.S. men's team played Costa Rica at Red Bull Arena in New Jersey. And they've blamed the Costa Rican fans that showed up. Yeah, for tilting the venue that 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 it, it gave it made it more difficult for the US men's team to win because of the rabid Costa Rican fans. Uh, uh yeah. Sports? So there are people that are actually calling for just I hope you're all sitting down. There are people calling for those international games to be played oh. in places that are more pro quote unquote US. I cannot Oh my God! Right? I mean, which is just is just like it's appalling. The gall. So the two thousand Costa Rican fans who support their team and very likely have a relationship to the United States, or they would not so easily be in that stadium, are being the scapegoats for U.S. men's team, and nobody wants to just say they totally sucked and they blew it, and Bruce Arena just called it wrong, which is actually the easy answer. Mm-hmm. Instead, they've invented this brown people problem, and it's to- it's totally awful. And this segues into what happened this week where the U.S. team lost Jonathan Gonzalez, right. who could have played for the U.S. or Mexico. And the U-20 coach, Tab Ramos, said, quote, for me, playing for a national team is more a feeling than anything else. If we have players in this country who feel Mexican and want to play for Mexico, I think they should play for Mexico. 
if we have players here who feel American, who want to fight for the U.S. and represent America, they should play for us. It's as simple as that, end of quote. Well, Tab Ramos, it is not at all as simple as that. And if you had any understanding or sensitivity to the fact that the 37 million Mexican-Americans who exist here and who are amazing soccer players have a little bit more of a complicated experience, then fuck you. I hope they all go play for Mexico. So I want to burn the whole kind of lack of appreciation for the awesomeness of the Latino community, Latinx community in U.S. soccer. And I want to say, Jonathan Gonzalez, buena suerte. I hope you have a wonderful experience with the Mexican national team. Burn. Yeah, burn that down. Burn. Uh, Shireen, what are you burning this week? Okay, I'm going to do a couple deep, deep breaths because this story just made me so angry. A friend of mine named Manisha Krishnan, she writes for Vice. She put forth the story and it was literally... A hockey player pleaded guilty to soliciting nude photos from a 13-year-old and using them to blackmail her. His jail sentence is being delayed so he doesn't miss any school. But one of the reasons that this particular absolute shithead of a person missed court dates was because he had hockey practice. So he's a former junior hockey player, and his name is Connor Nureter. And what happens to the Canadian system, as we know, is one of those many systems, justice systems, quote unquote, that actually does nothing for the victims. So what ends up happening is that like his jail sentence is being postponed, so he doesn't miss school. And so what happens is he pleaded guilty to what's called sexual interference of a 13-year-old girl. And it's just, it's, it's disgusting. And he's 21. And like, it follows a long line of, of, of stories that we see in Canada of like hockey players, particularly because they're revered in this country, that assault sentences postponed that wouldn't hurt their, you know, career opportunities that wouldn't hurt, you know, potential internships that wouldn't hurt. So we see this repeatedly. And how, you know, what happens to the young women that are like victimized? And what happens to them? Nothing, because the thought always stays with, you know, the, the actual abuser. Oh, well, he hasn't been found guilty. He hasn't done this. He hasn't done that. We know that being found not guilty in a court of law doesn't actually mean you didn't do it. There's a, there's a difference there. Just as a follow up on the story, another friend of mine, Ishmael Darrow for BuzzFeed, wrote the latest on this case because it was at the University of Calgary. Says the school says it can't expel Connor, who was convicted sex offender at this point. But if he tries to come to classes, he'll be kicked out by campus security. So. I mean, the thing is, is that there's policies in place that obstruct what needs to actually happen. The guy needs to be expelled. Why can't he be expelled? He's, he's convicted at this point. He's a predator of a 13-year-old. Why can he not just be like, really, University of Calgary? What the hell? You know what I'm saying? So I think it's like, I want to burn all of this. I want to burn those in, in unjust policies at the University of Calgary. I want to burn that hockey practice as a legitimate excuse for missing a court date. I want to burn all of it. Yes, burn that too. Burn. Well, this week I'm burning. I, just, I can't even. I don't even want to give time to it. But it literally is burning my eyes after reading this trashy, trashy take by one Shelby Steele in the pages of the Wall Street Journal that 
again centers black protests specifically by the NFL players as this kind of whipping boy so he can go and spew his garbage about just black America. It's just awful. So in an article entitled Black Protest Has Lost Its Power, and by literally, I knew I was out on this article by the time you read the subtitle, which is, have whites finally found the courage to judge African-Americans fairly by universal standards? It does not get better from there. It goes on to essentially say that that for these NFL players protesting, there was no real sacrifice, no risk, no achievement, and that basically this was a watershed moment because white people ended up pushing back, which is wonderful because Black Americans are playing into victim culture and there and he says unequivocally racism is over. He says, quote, the oppression of Black people is over with. This is politically incorrect news, Ugh. but it's true nonetheless. We are a free people. Yeah, no, it's, it's not fun, but out of the many things in in this awful piece that I I want to burn, one the this idea that there was no risk, no sacrifice, and no achievement on the part of the NFL players is absolutely ridiculous. No risk. Colin Kaepernick doesn't have a job. No risk. People lost endorsements. No risk. Try being a fringe player where this is your livelihood, and you have a watered down degree because your school has prioritized your exploits on the field over your learning in the class classroom and you're trying to feed a family talk about no risk like literally it I just cannot deal with it and the other thing he does is something that many people do and given the weekend that we're going into I wanted to highlight it which is that he invokes Martin Luther King in a way that makes me want to set something on literal fire like I have to say this is Martin Luther King weekend except if you're in Virginia or Arkansas, where it's Lee Jackson King weekend, because, you know, uh, you have to share the holiday with Confederate folks. But I have to say on this moment, like, take his name out of your mouth. Don't join the chorus of people who bastardize his work, who misquote him, and who make him into a caricature of the man he was and the serious liberatory thought that he had. You've watered him down in a way that is unrecognizable. And between that and the other kind of terribleness in the article, I just, I was up a wall and, and I try, I don't, this is the last thing I'll say about it. I'm not tweeting about it. I just, I don't want to bring it any attention, but I had to burn it burn. down. Oh my God. Burn. I'm so mad. Your burns made me so mad. Burn. What is politically correct? Burn. What does that even mean anymore? Does anyone, it's not 1991. Nobody uses that anymore. No, it's just a thing to People say. People who criticize political correctness just want to be able to say racist sexist bullshit precisely i mean and that's the literally the editors of the wall street Journal that gave him this article is essentially like let's have a blackface say yeah. the things we want to say so everybody can pile on and use this as a way to kind of point fingers and it's an old trick in the book and it's a disgusting one it doesn't get any better i'm just burn, over it. Torch, yes. torch, oh, burn, burn, burn torch, it burn it all of it all right well after all of that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sport this week with our Badass Women of the Week segment. 
first, let me give a wonderful shout out to former Badass Woman of the Week and recent guest of the podcast, Clarissa Shields, for winning a unanimous 10-round decision over Tori Nelson to retain her WBC IBF super Yay. middleweight title. She is now 5-0 and in her professional career. Congrats, Clarissa. That is awesome. Also, honorable mention to the Indian women's hockey team who collaborated with Haley Wickenheiser. Did I say that right, Shireen? It, you nailed it. Awesome. Who's the former captain of Canada's? Uh, this is not going well. <laughs> um, the former captain of Canada's women's hockey team. And they led a diplomatic hockey mission to Ladakh Village in the Himalayan Mountains in northern India. The team will then travel to Calgary in November for Wickenshire's World Female Hockey Festival, which sounds like an amazing thing. Road trip. <laughs> She's going to train the young women of India's first ice hockey team, and she calls it exchange opportunity. That is totally badass. Also, shout out Jessica Platt, who's the first trans woman in the Canadian Women's Hockey League with the Toronto Furies. And we also wanted to give a very positive honorable mention to Positive Sign Girl. You are very talented. And now a drum roll, please. That's a good drum. That's like a real not like it's me on the table because like I can't do the I can't do the baby otter sound. Our badass woman of the week is Nora Al Sharbini, who's an Egyptian woman and the current world champion in squash. So just recently, they had the first women's masters squash tournament in Saudi Arabia. The PSA, which is the Professional Squash Association, which she won, and she becomes the first female athlete to win a professional tournament in Saudi Arabia. So congratulations, you are our badass woman of the week, Nora Al Sharbini. All right. So let's end on a high note. What's going on in your world that is good? Give me all the good things. One of you start. One of you, give me the good thing, Shireen. Okay, I got so much good things, so I'm going to start. First, some of people who followed me on Twitter might notice my obsessive tweeting about Nadia Nadim, who you all know I love. She's actually playing right now. We're recording Sunday morning, and the Man City women are playing, or Chelsea, and Inia Luko, who I also love, is on Chelsea. But Nadia is just, oh my goodness. So I've created a hashtag, hashtag Shireen meets Nadia 2018, because I'm... <laughs> going to Manchester for a conference and I'm hopefully I'm stock is a very severe verb but I'm hoping to really meet her at some point and I'm really hoping I can make it happen thank you to everybody that emailed me with suggestions on how to make it happen also I went to a comedy show last night in Toronto called Shade it was created by my friend Anna Simone George and it was hilarious it's a space within the comedy community for people of color LGBTIQ and women specifically. So the cast was all like female identifying, actually, sorry, one gender non-conforming last night, but it was phenomenal. I laughed my head off. It was so well put together and I'm still on a high. Really quickly, the Raptors beat Cavs this week and I wasn't expecting that. So when it happened, I'm like, no, that didn't happen, but it happened and lost by two points to the Warriors last night. So everyone's like, who are these Raptors? Hello, DeMar DeRozan's been here for a long time. We know who we are. And lastly, I just wanted to say that although I'm sad that Arda Turan has been uh, traded back to the Turkish League on loan from, not traded, sorry, on loan from Barcelona, which means his his time at, at Barca is done, Yeri 
Mina is a Colombian, an Afro-Colombian player. And his introduction to the squad, it's done very formally. He had more than Coutinho, by the way, show up for his presentation. I'm just going to throw that out there. He walks onto the pitch barefoot as a sign of respect for the clubs that he goes to. And I almost cried when I saw this because this is such an incredible thing. I look, did a little bit of Googling on him and there wasn't a whole lot about his childhood that wasn't in Spanish, but he learned to play barefoot. And this was such a nod of respect that he was giving, you know, Camp Nou and he was giving his history to walk onto the pitch, not in like 500 pound cleats or boots. He walked on with his feet, just, just his feet. And I was like, this is amazing. So that's been giving me life. Sorry. I know I'm going on forever, but those things. I love all the good things that's (laughs) that it makes my day. My good thing is really simple. I wrote and I wrote and I'm making progress on the book and Mm. I started going through some of the research I was doing in Hawaii and it was really nice to just have a super, super productive writing day yesterday. And sometimes it's the little things that get you through. And yesterday it was, uh, you know, turning out a couple pages and feeling like I can see the finish line for the manuscript. So that is my very simple, productive, good thing. Oh, actually, no, I have another good thing. So in my gender and sexuality in sport class, I, I we uh, looked at portrayals of women athletes in commercials over time. We started with like Nike's 1995, If You Let Me Play ad, and we went up to Serena's sister in sweat Gatorade ad oh, that wow. recently came out. And I looked up from my little lectern when I was, when we were watching Serena's commercials and I saw multiple like tears in eyes and it was just such a really powerful moment and I was like this is you know this is going to be a good semester I, I I feel it so those are my something goods Brenda what's up with you well I'm not teaching which is good and bad because oh my gosh I know I'm not teaching yet I should say just oh, start later okay. because the Argentine school year is starts in March so mm. what I'm doing is working on looking for photographs and covers for my book Woo! And so a result of it, yeah, 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 football later. So it's so it's a go, and we've got everything that we're just in the revisions phase. But this is what's awesome about that. What's good about that is, I literally spend hours over the last few days just pouring over photographs of women athletes and girls, and from you know 1890s forward, from all over Latin America. Mm. And it's just, it's like a joy. I, I have to stop myself from getting like stuck in the hole of just looking and looking and never making a decision <laughs> <laughs> on which photographs, because it's a university press, so it's costly. So we only get like 20. But it's just such a joy to look back and, and see all of this history there. So that's been like a really good thing. I kind of feel like it's an isolating thing writing a book, sometimes and I feel like I've been with those women all week you know like I'm kind of like they're like my co-workers or something amazing so yeah that's what's good for me that's awesome
Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you all for joining us. Just a reminder, you can listen and subscribe to Burn It All Down. You can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Turnitin. Please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. The ratings help us reach new listeners who really need this feminist sports podcast in their lives, but don't yet know that it exists. We're also on Facebook at Burn It All Down or on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. For information about the show, links, transcriptions for each episode, and links to our Patreon, you can check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can email us from the site to give us feedback as well. We'd love to hear from you. We'd like to thank Hostel University for its continued support. And that's all from me, Amira Rose Davis, Shireen, Brenda. Thank you, and see you next week. And I'm